Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, live from beautiful Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Yes, it's me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's me. Oh, keep clapping. Keep clapping. Clap. It's almost October miracle. How would we know that you were deeply horrified that this year is three quarters over if you didn't keep clapping? Welcome to my fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us today, September 30th. Holy crap. I I'm supposed to say something funny. There's nothing funny to say. This year's almost over. It's kind of horrifying. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. This show is not going to be horrifying. This show is going to be fantastic. Why? Because you're here. I did forget to put my phone on silent. There you go. Now it's silent. Now it's going to be a great episode because you're here and my phone's not going to accidentally interrupt us. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out on everything. All social media platforms. All podcasting platforms check us out on anchor and be sure of course to subscribe to anchor by going to anchor.fm slash muddywaters slash subscribe become a member today you get exclusive access to exclusive muddied waters media content just for our subscribers and then you'll also be able to be part of our exclusive muddied zoom that we do every month uh where uh, us and all the muddy waters me and all the muddy waters all stars will get to hang out just with you and we'll live stream it so all these other poor schmoes can watch and say oh i wish i was giving them ten dollars a month and i could hang out with them too that's what you get for the low price of ten dollars a month anchor.fm slash subscribe no anchor.fm slash muddy waters slash subscribe subscribe today become a mudsketeer Be sure to like and comment and subscribe and share and do all the algorithm things that make the internet very happy. And if you are doing so on YouTube, be sure not just to subscribe, but hit the little bell. Hit the bell next to Muddy Waters Media right now so that your phone can explode with notifications every time we go live. That's what I want for you. And share this right now. The last thing I want is for you and your loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long Libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. Give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. The This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing caucus in the, well, in the second largest caucus in the Libertarian Party. Uh, and you can become a member today and join the powerhouse movement. We don't actually, we don't actually do anything, but you can uh, become a member today uh, by going to the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. Uh, you can also become an exclusive voting member, which means nothing. That means nothing. Don't worry about it. Uh, but you can become, you can get some Waffle House, you can get this logo on stuff by going to muddiedwatersmedia.com slash store and, become, and uh, buying some, well, you can buy all sorts of stuff there. But one of the things you can buy there is you can buy a Waffle House Caucus button or a Waffle House Caucus shirt. The Gravy King. 
Cumberland Cannabis, if you'd like to buy viable, ethical, and effective Delta 8 and CBD products from Cumberland County, Tennessee, well, what great news we have to share together in this moment. If you go to cumberlandcannabisco.com, you can get all of those things. Viable, ethical, effective, hempy, cannabisy. cumberlandcannabisco.com. Joe Soloski is running for governor of Pennsylvania. Joe is a libertarian through and through. He says that liberty is the key to Pennsylvania success. And if you would like to help him become the first libertarian governor ever, then go to joesoloski.com. That's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I dot com. Mudwater, the most appropriately named sponsor that we'll probably ever have because it's Mudwater. Folks, if you woke up today and said, my God, if I'd never have another cup of coffee in my life, it'll be too soon. I would instead like to have masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. That surely won't taste terrible. Well, you're, well, if you go to moneywatersmedia.com slash mud, you can get that and find out what it tastes like for yourself. I would add some honey. I take this. uh, I use this and it's very good. It's good for you. It is, you would, you'll want to add some honey. It's got one-seventh of the caffeine of coffee. Just enough to get you all hyped up like this, but not so much that it's going to lead you to have a nervous breakdown like this. This is what nervous breakdowns look like. How are you feeling? I'm having a nervous breakdown. So, uh, Mudwater, you can go to muddywatersmedia.com mud to get your starter pack and sign up today. Speaking of things that might cause a nervous breakdown, Jack Casey is he he made these books. I don't know. They might they might you know what they might lift you up. Maybe if you read a Jack Casey book, it'll have you feeling like this. But maybe if you read it, it'll have you feeling like this. I don't really know because I've never actually read a Jack Casey book and I never will. But you should by going to the royalgreen.com and picking up these sweet sweet books, The Royal Green in Silver Throned and Crowned it by Gold. I'm sure they're good. I'm told they're good. My our, our fans and followers and family and friends say they're all great. I'm sure that's true. There's no way that Jack Casey could possibly be some kind of weird cult leader that's convincing everyone he's writing good books when in reality he's selling them on some new religion, going to take them into an island, and oh, God knows what will happen then. Adderpan, the most horrifying game to ever be played, ever, by anyone. Uh, it's I don't... I sure. So if you go to Steam right now, you can get the most the horrifying and scary thing I've ever witnessed. Uh, I've never actually played this game, but I did watch a video walkthrough, and dear lord. Uh, so if you go and, and play this game, then you're gonna have. I I don't. This is a genre that has an acquired taste, shall we say? The kind of people who like having nervous breakdowns and feeling like this. Except you're not going to feel like this. You're going to feel like this for the rest of your life. So if you like that, that sounds good to you. Uh, go to Steam and download Adderpan for the low, low price of $5 plus all of your ongoing mental health needs, including Propofol. You will need Propofol. And we did confirm that Propofol is the correct the correct one that I'm, I'm saying. You'll, you'll need that to be able to sleep for the rest of your life. But you know what you won't need propofol for? Fierce Luxury by Ashley. Unless you need propofol to calm down from all those high-end bags and accessories that she sells on her exclusive online consignment store. Brands such as Louis Vuitton, Gucci, and Hermes. And Chanel. And Hermes. You can go on there and buy some of the sweetest brands like 
Hermes. By going to fierceluxurybyashley.com, you can also consign your Hermes with her uh, at only a 30% cost, which is 20% less than every one of these other bastards out there charge. That's what she said. I, I don't know if that's, I mean, I'm maybe they're not bastards. I don't know. Fierce Luxury by Ashley.com, or you can go to the exclusive Facebook group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley. And you know what else is fierce and luxurious? Thomas Queter. He's running for state senate. Thomas Queter says, I run better than Albany, which is hilarious because he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> That's never not going to be terrible when I say that. He, he pays us to say that. Anyway, Thomas Queter is one of the most incredible human beings I know. He is, he doesn't pay me to say this part. He probably would rather I didn't and just keep joking about the fact that he's a cripple. But I think Thomas Queter is one of the best people I've ever met in my life. He is a fantastic human being. He is emblematic of what a libertarian should be through and through. Uh, He has such a heart for the people. He has such energy and such commitment. Um, He's just an incredible human being. And I can think of no one else that I think would be better suited to be the next state senator for the 52nd district of New York State. And if you can, then I'd like to see who they are in a pig's eye. In a pig's eye, they're better than Thomas Queter. You hear me? Pig's eye. Go to TomFor52.com and you can help him today. T-O-M-F-O-R 52.com. If after watching this, you said, Spike, I am horrified and I'm going to sue you. Well, good luck, pal because I'm going to sue you back if you're in Florida using the personal personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. But if you want to sue someone else and you're in the state of Florida, then you should go to personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. He is uh, a great attorney. He will sue people for you because that's what attorneys do. And he will get you so much money, just stupid walking around money. He'll get you some of that F you money, huh? Huh? I don't know what that means, but he's going to get you money so that you can swear at people. I don't fully understand that concept, but he can get you lots of money, so much money, you're not even gonna know what to do. You're gonna be lousy with money by going to chrisreynoldslaw.com. The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Go check him out on Facebook, go to his SoundCloud, go to his Bandcamp, joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography, if you will. It'll only cost you like 25 bucks. His new album just dropped. Great music. Just a fantastic artist. I can't say more good about him. He's great. Go buy all of his stuff. JoeDaviMusic.BandCamp.com. Thank you so much, Joe Davi. I'd like to think... I'd like to thank Kroger for this delicious purified drinking water that I'm drinking on this episode of my fellow Americans. Kroger water. It's $2.99 for a 30-pack. It's $2.99 for a 30-pack. What do you want from me? Bulavanaga. It's actually good, too. It's not bad. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him, as always. Folks, my guest tonight is a really cool guy, and I'm going to air his interview right now, so you'll get to see just how cool he is. But first, I need to let you know, because I forgot to mention it earlier on in the episode, he mentions it towards the end, but I need to let you know earlier on, so you already know, in addition to being all the things I'm about to say, that he is he is also the co-author of the book Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. This is a tome for 
policy, monetary policy, and what should be done moving forward, hint, hint, and the Fed. But uh, you definitely want to check this book out. If you are into, um, into monetary policy, you want to find out more, this is definitely a great place to start. And right now, I will put the link in the comments so that you can see you can see where you can buy it. So that's on all the things right now. It's not on Facebook yet. I'm just gonna go ahead and put it directly on Facebook. I don't know what's going on with Muddy Waters right now. All right, I'm gonna put it directly on Facebook as Spike Cohen. This is fun. Oh no, it's on there. Okay, never mind. Uh, it's just saying on the chat that it's not on there. Anyway, so that's where you can get this book, uh, Modern Monetary or no, uh, monetary money and the rule of law, money and the rule of law. That's the book. And now without any further ado, actually a slight amount of further ado, uh, I am going to be in the comments watching you lurking, reading what you write and responding. If I see fit, whatever you comment, I'm there looking closely. So comment wisely. So without any further ado, uh, this is my amazing interview that I aired before. It was such a recent interview that I'm still wearing the same shirt. It was just, it was like three hours ago. So uh, hang out uh, and watch this incredible interview. I am going to be commenting so hard. Don't think that, don't think this is, you know, don't think this is the time to get one over on me because I'm going to be in the comments. So I'm already lurking. It's too late. So here is my incredible interview with Professor Alex Salter. Folks, my guest tonight is an associate professor of economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech. I remember Texas Tech when I was in Lubbock last year. Uh, and the uh, Comparative Economics Research Fellow at Texas Tech's Free Market Institute. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having him on, if for no other reason than I can keep saying Texas Tech over and over again. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show, Professor Alexander Salter. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. First, Mike, let me say thank you for having me. Second, let me say, guns up. Go Red Raiders. Guns up. That was the thing that we were, okay. Remember I was talking about the call and response? That sure, was, yeah. it was supposed That's to be guns up. They would do that and I'm like, I thought it was an L, like a libertarian L. And they're like, no, you're supposed to say guns up. And I'm like, guns up. And they're like, guns up. Yeah. So <laughs> thanks. I appreciate you coming on the show. And folks, this is being pre-recorded, but I am lurking in the comments with you. So be sure to ask us any questions you have. And I will personally, right now as you're watching this, let you know if you are right or wrong. You're probably right, but I'll let you know. Um, Alex, before we get started, whenever I have a libertarian on my show, I always start by asking this. What is it that, when was it that moment when you realized you were a libertarian or that got you into libertarianism? Was it like this aha moment or was it sort of a gradual evolution over time? You know, every libertarian has their genesis story. Tell us the, the Alex Salter story. Yeah, mine's a, mine's a pretty typical gradual story, I think. I started studying economics in high school and then I continued it in college. And I actually uh, was fascinated by economics because I thought I wanted to basically be a macroeconomic planner. I wanted to use math and statistics to try and uh, smooth out the business cycle and plan the economy and do all these things in a top-down right. policy way. 
And then the more economics that I studied and read, the less convinced I became that that was a viable approach to policy and political economy. So I got into economics for that reason, to try and be uh, that kind of a policy top-down implementer. I stayed in economics once I read Hayek's works, Mises' works, the great classically liberal political economists, and they sort of uh, guided me to my eventual libertarianism. So it was a fun journey, and it was a very valuable intellectual journey for me. I love it. So you went in... So this is, I talk about this constantly to the point where it annoys people, but the Dunning-Kruger scale. So you came in and you're like, I'm going to come in and I am going to figure out what every economist got wrong before me. I'm going to centrally plan this economy. No more recessions, no more boom bust. We're just going to go straight through and have just pure economic growth. And then you get in and you realize, actually, it doesn't work like that at all. And anyone who's attempting to centrally plan ends up making things worse. Does that, does that sound about right? That's the long and short of it, right? I think uh, Paul Krugman had this famous essay where he got into economics because he wanted to be Harry Selden from the, from the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov, yeah. who's a sort of brainiac social planner. And I had that too. Uh, the difference is I got over it. <laughs> He's still trying. He's still trying. He was so close about... Try. What's that? He's giving it the old college try. He is definitely giving it the college try. Uh, I, he was so close with the internet thing. You know, he said that it was going to be done like the fax machine. And he said, for, I, I don't want to derail the conversation, but he said that in like 03 or 01 or something like Who was saying in the early 2000s that the internet was a fad? I, anyway, I I'm sorry. That's a good question. I can only assume uh, charitably that he was looking at the productivity, uh, productivity statistics and they might not have spiked and boomed in there yet. But uh, you would think that if you're a little more forward looking, you would realize this, this is a thing. This is more than just a fad. It's more than the fax machine. Anyway, anyway. Uh, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. We're going to be talking uh, because because you are an economist. We could spend several hours talking about stuff. So instead, we're going to focus on one thing. It's something that's been coming up a lot recently as the government has decided that they're going to just spend forever and that that's perfectly fine. There are no more fiscal hawks or deficit hawks, it seems, in, in D.C. anymore, at least certainly none that are, are any real consequence. Um, and this all seems to be coming from modern monetary th uh, theory. And uh, economist uh, Stephanie Kelton, who is the leading expert on MMT, uh, we're not going to just keep saying modern monetary theory, MMT, uh, argues that since the U.S. prints its own currency, uh, private wealth can balance out public death, debt. And so the government doesn't ever have to worry about running out of money. Please explain why everything that's wrong with that statement. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so I think it was Voltaire who, when talking about the Holy Roman Empire, said the Holy Roman Empire is not holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. Well, as it turns out, modern monetary theory is not modern. It's not really about money. And it's not an economic theory. So we're 0 for 3 on, uh, on that front as well. Oh, wow. Okay. A lot of things that modern monetary theory say were actually realized by generations of economists beforehand. You can even find some of the modern monetary theory claims in Adam Smith, right? The godfather of economic liberalism. Right. So the difference is modern monetary theory starts with a set of propositions about what countries can do when they tax and spend in their own money. Right. So Uncle Sam taxes in dollars, it spends in dollars, dollars are a currency that it controls. 
And so in theory, right, we can run the printing presses to meet any of our fiscal needs. We don't actually need to levy taxes. We don't actually need to go through that politically onerous process. All right. we need to do is print baby print. Now, if you're familiar with what happens when you print massive quantities of money and put them into circulation, you might be worried about spikes in inflation. Modern monetary theorists say, no, as long as there's any excess capacity in the economy, as long as there are unused resources, as long as people are unemployed, we're really not going to see those inflationary effects. And so when you get into it, modern monetary theory is really more of a policy grab bag. It's sort of a, a paradigm for public finance that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the economics of money or money in banking or macroeconomics. It certainly has some implications in that, but it doesn't purport to be a theoretical description of the way that the economy works. It's more just a newfangled uh, expression that we use to give advice to whoever happens to be in the policymaker seat right now. Well, so that's that was my question here. And again, I'm not an economist. I definitely subscribe to the Austrian school, but I'm doing so from a very layman standpoint. I mean, I have a basic understanding of Austrian versus Chicago and so forth. But I, I, I don't I'm certainly not a professor of uh, economics, much less one at Texas Tech. Uh, guns up. Um, but I uh, but uh, it seems like this isn't like you said, it's not a monetary theory. It seems like it's sort of this presuppositional thing where it's like, well, we can just use money for whatever we want. Uh, we, we can just print out however much we want and it'll work as long as everything's going well macroeconomically, as long as we have as many people employed as possible and people are making as much money as possible. What is their justification for saying that that isn't inevitably that endlessly inflating the monetary supply isn't going to lead to inflation of prices where where is that right so the basic logic starts from we're a government we control the supply of our own money so technically we can never default default's always a choice since we could always run the printing presses to meet our debt obligations they then leap from that to saying therefore we should actually finance the government using the printing press and only use taxation to control inflation if it ever arises, for example. It's sort of a functional finance theory of, of uh, what Uncle Sam should tax and spend. Now, as far as I can understand, the reason they don't think that there are going to be massive inflationary consequences to all this is because they see a lot more what they call excess capacity in the economy than mainstream economists see. Modern monetary theorists think that persistent resource underutilization pervades modern capitalist economy. There's a lot more that we can get out of our resources, especially labor, than it's supposedly profitable for markets to actually put to use. Now, I don't personally buy that story. Uh, if you have idle resources, by definition, you have a profit opportunity and markets are pretty good at finding those and exploiting those. But if I'm an MMT advocate, I think that it's better to err on the side of pushing unemployment as low as it can possibly go to put up with some inflation than to risk the problems that might attend to too much unemployment, like human capital erosion, uh, people permanently being out of the workforce. To them, those costs are worse. I think one of the big differences between an MMT advocate and a mainstream economist is they see inflation, they being a mainstream economist, sees disastrously high inflation coming into play much sooner. And really big inflation has its own costs that it creates for economic activity that actually might make utilizing resources even harder. Well, that's what I was going to say. If it, it, When you have massive inflation, that's going to lead to even more waste and more, uh, uh, as they would call, excess, right? Like if, if things exponentially cost more in a relatively short period of time, that's going to make every metric worse in the economy. I, I guess... 
I guess I'm asking an Austrian economist to explain why MMT isn't wrong, and, and you can't, but it, it, is it this simple to disprove this? Or are we this smart, or is it just this is that bad of a theory? No, I think that it's advocates. On the one hand, they think that there's way more resource underutilization in economies than there actually is. If right. someone is in between jobs or left a job because they're searching for a new job and it, it makes sense to, uh, to not be employed while you specialize in searching for the new one, that's going to be something that a mainstream economist would say, well, that's potentially productive. The person is currently specializing in trying to find a new job, and that's going to help them find the best uh, wage price offer that's good for them. Right. Whereas if you're looking at those same unemployment numbers as a modern monetary theorist, you're much more likely to say this is a this is a problem, right? We have persistent underemployment. We need to put these guys to work. And as long as there are still idle workers who can be put to work, as long as there are still these shovel-ready projects in the economy, we don't have to worry about inflation. But that's just not the case. You don't necessarily need to have every single factory running as fast as it possibly can or every single worker working overtime before you start getting inflation. If you run the printing presses and put that money into circulation and people spend the money, prices are going to go up. Once inflation hits about the five to seven and a half percent per year territory, something that we're actually approaching right now, although we're on the lower end of it, that's when many economic models start to suggest that inflation can actually make the economy operate less efficiently. We're actually going to get less bang for our buck out of our resources because right. inflation is throwing a wrench in the pricing process, right? It's hard to figure out what price changes are due to supply and demand changes right. and what are just due to the funny money effect of larger, larger money printing and larger inflation. So I think that this is a big problem. I think that modern monetary theorists would be more likely to say, look, we don't have to worry about inflation right now. Even at current levels, it's low cost compared to what we're leaving on the table in terms of persistently underemploying our workforce. So interestingly enough, they're actually seeing like, so if they're looking at the average number of days between jobs that someone has, they're seeing that as far worse than double digit cost increases, basically. Or even falling labor force participation rates. So this is something that like hardline supply side mainstream economists and modern monetary theorists share in terms of their concerns, right? Ever since the end of the Great Recession of 2008, labor force participation among prime age working people has been tending down. And that's a little bit concerning. Right. And so they, uh, modern monetary theorists and more conventional economists share a concern over that. And so that's good. It's good that we share that concern because it is, it is an, uh, an area that we should be taking a look at because we don't want a large fraction of our working age population not in the labor force. But I think that modern monetary theorists are just too optimistic about our ability to quite literally paper over those structural problems in the economy. Right. They're, they're basically thinking enough money's not being th literally created in, they're not even, you know, we talk about printing the money, money machine goes burnt, but at this point, they're literally just adding numbers to a, an electronic ledger. They've reached a point where it's not even efficient to print out this kind of money anymore. Right. They're just creating money on an electronic ledger and then, and then, you know, transferring it to, you know, major banks, to the, to the treasury in exchange for uh, um, treasury notes and things like that, basically running up debts in our name and the name of future generations. And they don't see a problem that that here's a question I've had. And I've, I've asked, two other people this and they answered it but also lost me at some point and i'm not sure whose fault it was i'd like to think it was theirs how is mmt different from keynesianism or is it because i hear the same infatuation with velocity of of money I, everything that they say and their justifications for things seem identical what is there a difference between mmt and keynesianism or or 
is, is it yeah, I think that there thing? is. So okay. in terms of the genealogy of ideas, there is some overlap, right? Okay. Old school, uh, Great Depression style Keynesianism became sort of the, the economic consensus going into the post-war years in the 1950s. Yep. Eventually, that some Keynesians from that school drifted and started what they called the post-Keynesian school that also incorporated some uh, some insights from a scholar named uh, Hyman Minsky and some other some other heterodox economists. And then the generation after that is where modern monetary theory really got to be born. And so there definitely is an intellectual genealogy there. At the same time, there is some differences between modern monetary theory and old school Keynesianism. Old school Keynesianism, for example, didn't think that printing money and spending it on stuff was all that effective. Old school Keynesianism was much more about fiscal policy than modern uh, than monetary policy. Whereas okay. modern monetary theory is all about using monetary policy. It's just using the printing press for fiscal ends. It's absolutely effective. We're just changing slightly the, the emphasis. Most people who call themselves Keynesians in, in the academy or economic debate today are what you would call new Keynesians. And that name is sort of misleading since new Keynesianism takes as much of its insights and founding principles from old school monetarism as it does old school Keynesianism, right? So there's just as much Milton Friedman as there is John Maynard Keynes in modern macroeconomics if you're a mainstream guy. And so once you get into that school of economic thought, it's sort of hard to see a bit of a difference between modern monetary theory, aside from the fact that from a policy standpoint, modern monetary theory is proposing a complete overhaul of how we conduct public finance in this country. No longer is Uncle Sam going to bother to levy taxes to raise revenue. Instead, the revenue is going to come from printing money. And the only thing that we'll have left over is taxation, which we might need to ratchet up if inflation gets out of hand and we want to raise taxes to get a control of inflation. Again, that's not something I personally agree with. I don't think that the right. stance of fiscal policy affects inflation all that much. But if you're an MMT person, we disagree with that. And what's insane about that is that, okay, so if you believe that taxation is only something you ratchet up for reduction of inflation purposes, let's say you reach a point where you are spending 10 or even 100 times as much as you could conceivably raise in revenue from the existing economy. And now, so, and now as a result of that, you've got, you know, 20, 30% inflation or 10%, whatever, you've got massive hyperinflation and a budget that is ex literally exponentially higher than anything you could raise from the economy. At that point, even using their theory, what could raising the taxes by, you know, even a marginal rate, much less, or, or even by, you know, 50 or 60%, much less a marginal increase, what would that do in their own theory to dent inflation? Or, or do they really believe that inflation really is not tied in any way to the inflation of the monetary policy? They believe it's the the inefficiencies within the economy that are causing inflation. Yeah, MMT advocates are much more likely to believe in what might be called uh, demand pull inflation or cost push inflation. Those are just technical jargons for kinds of inflation that are due to things for reasons other than increases in the money supply. So those explanations for inflation sort of fell out of fashion when Milton Friedman came on the scene and convinced everybody that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So if you're a modern monetary theorist, you actually have a lot of faith in the ability of the taxing power to siphon off the quote unquote excess nominal income, right? The excess aggregate demand out of the economy to get a control of price increases. Now, a more orthodox economist, a more mainstream economist would look at that and say, increasing taxes doesn't really decrease the money supply, and it's not really going to do a whole lot to slow the rate at which a dollar turns over, 
right? Those two things together drive total income in the economy and by extension inflation. So I don't really buy the argument that you can effectively use taxing power to siphon off inflation. I think that once that cat's out of the bag, it's going to be really, really hard to get control of. But here's another thing. Even if modern monetary theorists are right and taxation is a good tool to get control over inflation, you've got to consider the political economy of all this. Would we actually trust Congress to implement the taxes that would hypothetically be necessary to rein in inflation and stop the runaway growth in purchasing power? Taxes aren't very popular with our members of Congress, right? Even people who wear, you know, tax the rich clothing. Right. When it comes down to it, they don't actually like levying taxes because that makes constituents angry. So that's why we have a perpetual deficits problem in the first place. Everybody right. likes spending. Nobody likes taxing. I don't think even in the presence of double digit inflation and runaway growth in the money supply, that politicians can be counted on to enact the kind of taxation necessary that in the best of all possible worlds could maybe get control of this inflationary process. So when it, you know, in terms of the rubber hitting the road, I think modern monetary theory is a recipe for a political economic disaster. It is incredible to me that there are adult human beings who believe this and, and it's and not just hear it once and go, oh, OK, that makes sense. But people who have actually done far more study on this than I have and still come to this conclusion. I'm not surprised that politicians say this. Politicians say whatever's put in front of them. They're, they're, that's what they do. They're basically actors. Um, but th- that there are people who fancy themselves economists that are pushing this forward. I mean, again, okay, so you're taxing to reduce inflation, but then that money's, that's you're taking money out of the private uh, sector and putting it into the public sector where they inherently spend more uh, because their entire budgetary, their their entire process is built around making justifying inflating their budget so now you're actually from the demand side pushing for more inflation jeez anyway so obviously we can spend the next hour agreeing on how terrible this is but let's let's get into how this actually ends up playing out so something that we've heard a lot something that i would imagine based on our, our conversation what i knew before about mmt is that they're not fans of the debt limit or the debt ceiling uh and for those who don't know what that is the debt ceiling is basically there is a limit to the amount of debt of national debt that congress uh is allowed to that that congress allows the treasury department to run up at the at the federal level and you're probably thinking that's fantastic spike what great news except no in the past 15 years uh they've uh 78 times they've raised it uh 49 times under a republican uh, republican president 29 times under a democrat president different time a large number of times under republican congresses and democrat congresses it doesn't really matter who's in charge they've even suspended it a few times before we get into how what MMT would like to see when it comes to the debt ceiling, which I assume is get rid of it entirely, what would happen right now? Like we're, we're having this debate again. What would actually happen short term and long term if the debt ceiling wasn't raised? That's a difficult question. So if the debt ceiling isn't raised, Uncle Sam's in trouble because we have obligations that are due come mid-October that if in the short run, if we can't borrow some more money to pay off those old obligations, and notice how crazy that is from an accounting standpoint, by the way. But if we can't actually meet those obligations, then some US debt securities may actually be in default. And the global financial system treats government debt as the ultimate risk-free asset, the ultimate safe asset. If it suddenly becomes revealed that the world's safe, quote unquote, asset isn't so safe anymore, 
you can imagine that, that might wreak, wreak some havoc on global financial portfolios. At the same time, markets don't seem to be too worried right now. We're not seeing yields spike on government debt, right? There's not much change in interest rates. Uh, politicians and bureaucrats are losing a lot of sleep over this, but at least right now markets aren't. So we can debate why that is. Maybe they just think that at the 11th hour again, the debt ceiling will be raised, or maybe they think right. that if it isn't raised, the consequences won't be that won't uh, be that severe. Maybe they're counting on the Federal Reserve executing its contingency plan to uh, buy some of the securities that are in default and pay with them with newly created money. So the people who are technically in default actually get made whole. So there's no actual problem. So right. for whatever reason, markets aren't spooked. And so you might view that as partially reassuring, or maybe you might view that as a, uh, as a sign of some more policy creep that we don't like that's yet to come. Yeah, I, I'd like to think that it's that they aren't worried about if it doesn't get increased. Honestly, I think the reason they're not spooked is because they know that they're going to increase it. That it, you know, this, this is something. This is a game that they played seventy-eight times in the last fifty years. I think at this point they're just like, yeah, you're going to raise it. You're going to play your little, uh, you know, your kabuki theater about it. But at the end of the day, you're going to raise it. And yeah, like you said, they that you could have uh, the um, the the Fed play some pull some tr tr tricks out of their sleeve as well. But I so okay. I assume that you like me well I, I don't want to assume that are would you be in favor of just saying no this is the debt ceiling we're not raising it anymore we've been playing the okay one more time uh you know game for for you know decades now it's time to just this is the debt ceiling and yeah we're gonna have a, a bit of a hard bump hitting into it but we got it we got to pull that band-aid off at some point is that something you personally think would be would be a good idea at least long term even if even if in the, the short term it would cause problems yeah, I think that there's been, I, I didn't realize it was 78 times in the last 15 years, but there's a definite feel of playing sorry, music. Sorry, 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 five zero, 50 years. Oh, five zero, 50 years. Well, even so, 78 is a pretty big number, even over half a century. There's definitely a bit of playing musical chairs associated with all this, except we never actually remove the chair when the music stops. So it's all, it's all for show. I don't love the idea of standing firm on the debt ceiling now and incurring those right. short-run consequences, which could potentially be huge. But at the same time, you have to make a stand at some point. At some point, you have to say enough is enough. Once we realize what the political incentives are, each time we raise the debt ceiling, we make it harder to get our fiscal house in order the next time this comes around. I'm tired of continuing resolutions. I'm tired of fake budgets. I think that this is banana republic territory. And I think that it does not reflect well on the government of the United States. What I would like to see, which won't, won't happen, but as long as we're wishing, you know, I want a pony. <laughs> and what I would like to see is some agreement to raise the debt ceiling in exchange for real fiscal reforms going into the future. So if you could get congressional Republicans to say, if and only if you agree to massive cuts in the rate of growth of whatever social programs you want, Democrats will agree to raise this debt ceiling one more time, but we're also going to institutionalize a better fiscal path right now so we, we don't keep on running into this problem in the future. I think that that would be a reasonable political exchange.
Right. So to talk about the more reasonable part of what you just said, I am friends with Vermin Supreme. What would you, if you want a pony, we can try to get that for you. That's probably more likely to happen than what you said, or or the the debt ceiling not being raised. Honestly, I I, I do think the reason there's no blinking happening or any market jitters is because everyone knows what's going to happen. They're going to sit there and go, oh, the Republican, oh, the Democrat, and then they're going to raise it because they always do. You've got Chuck Schumer uh, in charge of. Uh, the the 50 Democrats and you've got um, um, uh, Mitch McConnell in charge of the 50 Republicans and you've got Nancy Pelosi in charge of the of Congress I I don't and you've got Joe Biden in in the White House it's not it's they're not going to not raise it um, if 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 there had been any chance that the so-called fiscal hawks would have actually you know said we're going to change this it would have happened when the republicans the so-called fiscal hawk republicans controlled congress completely in the presidency in the early 2000s and then again for two years under donald trump and it, it didn't happen then um i want to talk about your reason article uh that just came out uh back in i think it was june it came out earlier this summer um right. there's there's nothing modern about mmt where you said that mmt is neither modern monetary nor a theory um but you, uh, in your article, you you laid out four main reasons why MMT doesn't work uh, today. But then, I guess before we get to that, you mentioned that modern monetary theory is not actually new, uh, and that there's there's actually some precedent in in the founding of the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So if you go back in early U.S. history, we're talking the colonial era and then the early national era, uh, in between. Uh, the Articles of Confederation, but before we ratified the Constitution in, in 1789, currency finance by state governments was actually not that uncommon. And what I mean by that is state governments would actually print up just fiat money, obligations drawn on itself, purchase goods and services with it, basically meet its short, uh, short-term expenditure needs with it. And then eventually they would retire those notes by accepting them in payment for taxation. Right. So there was two kinds of notes. There's the tax anticipation notes, right? The government puts fiat money out into the economy and says the thing that's going to give this value is when it comes time for you citizens to pay your taxes, we'll accept this fiat paper money as an obligation. Right. So you can discharge your tax obligation to the local government with this or they would loan out the money against mortgages that would go to finance improvements in land, primarily farming improvements. Um, the reason that this actually worked pretty well, most people to the extent that they're familiar with colonial finance know about like hyperinflation in New England and Massachusetts and, uh, and also the Carolinas. So yeah, right. this strategy got out of hand there. But in the other colonies, especially the middle colonies, it actually worked very well. It was a reasonable way of the government raising revenue in an era where it was very, very difficult to levy direct taxes, right? We're not talking about a predominantly urban population that has lots of liquid wealth that it can pay taxes in. We're talking about a lot of farmers, artisans, most of their wealth is tied up in capital goods. And so that means it's going to be very hard for them to pay taxes. So in what way do you levy taxes if that's the case? You print money, you put it into circulation and you gradually increase its supply. So you have a slow and steady inflation tax, and that goes to finance a lot of short-term expenditures by these local governments. And provided that you have four background conditions, right, four things happening in the background of that, that can actually work well. What you need is jurisdictional competition, right? The population was actually pretty mobile. You need local small-scale democracy. You need a good outside option for the monetary economy. Right. So if hyperinflation happens because this process gets out of hand, you can always go and farm 
right? So you have an, you have an exit option to the monetary economy, and you specifically target this fine target this financing method for specific local self liquidating expenditures. In other words, you have a project in mind, and you only dedicate the newly printed money to do that. If you have all four of those things, then yes, currency finance can actually be a viable option for state governments. Uh, you may notice, of course, that none of those four conditions exist today. Not one. Right. Uh, we're not talking about local direct democracy. We're talking about financing a government budget that's supposed to finance a country of 330 million people. Weak right. jurisdictional competition. We're talking about general expenditures rather than uh, targeted specific projects. You have none of those four things going on right now. I mean, if you had one or two, at least you might be able to make a respectable political economy argument for modern monetary theory, but you don't. So I, I just don't think it can work today. So the four of them, again, are that and, and we can contrast it with what we actually have. What it would need is a lot of jurisdictional competition. This is a literal monopoly. There is no jurisdictional competition. You aren't mm -hmm. going anywhere without paying an uh, expatriate tax and leaving the damn country. So that's not it. So that's that part's out. Uh, there needs to be, uh, I forget how you worded it, but basically people need to be able to uh, exit this capital part of the economy and 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 trade another way. Am I saying that correctly? That they not yeah, not basically have a good outside option, right? You could revert to a barter, meaning non-monetary economy, pretty easy. On uh, the and colonial era, right, when you had a lot of people farming out on the frontier, right, a lot of the trade that they engaged in in those small towns, those small communities, had nothing to do with money. It was just bookkeeping. You know, I gave you some food, and so you give me some hay later on, or something like that. So, so if so you have that house option, then yeah, the monetary breakdown isn't that costly for you. So then, for example, in a, a, here it would be maybe crypto, but only if it wasn't taxed or or allowing bartering, but where it's not considered a like kind payment that still has to be taxed. So basically, they'd only tax what the, the Federal Reserve notes were being used for, not anything else that has an actual capital value. Right. Plus the difference, think about being cut off from the financial system just because using Federal Reserve liabilities is too costly because of hyperinflation. Right. Your next right. best option is pretty bad in 2021 right. because the standard of living that we take, you know, we take for granted depends on having access to the financial system. In 1770, though, your next best option isn't that much worse than, than using the monetary economy. Right. And so then another one was if it was used for very specific and localized purposes, MMT is professing using this for literally everything and for taking even more of the economy over from the government side. So basically having it finance all of our society. And then what's the fourth thing that I'm missing? So we got jurisdictional competition, targeted expenditures, uh, good outside option, small scale democracy. Oh, yeah, small scale. Right? Okay. So one, one of the things that we're not doing a very good job wrestling with in contemporary American politics and haven't for decades is that democracy really doesn't scale very well. New England town meetings work great, right? Democracy at a level of 330 million people, well, that doesn't work the same. That's not just a big New England town meeting. That's a qualitatively different thing. Right, right. So it's, it's just not going to work when you have that many people and that weak, uh, weak feedback in the political process. So ironically, MMT could in theory work, but only if libertarians got their way with secessionism and we had much smaller and more localized governments 
each doing their thing with MMT. And we had a very strong secondary capital economy, like, for example, crypto and DeFi. Uh, and people were able to freely move across these, uh, at that point, national or state borders without any kind of limitations there. Then this might be able to, oh, and if everything was very localized in, in, its, in its usage and not just for general funding of things, then and only then could it work. So pretty much if libertarianism won out everywhere in every other part of government policy, then maybe MMT could work. Right. If we actually had some meaningful federalism and if most of the governing that people actually cared about happened at City Hall or maybe the state capitol. So uh, there's a certain irony in the fact that modern monetary theory can only work in a libertarian society. That's, that's <laughs> something that I find particularly, particularly amusing. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that's even the best, obviously, that that's the best way to do it in a libertarian society, just that it's only even remotely feasible in a libertarian society. Are there examples, I assume there are at least one or two counterexamples of MMT being used in the near or, or far, near or distant future uh, or near or distant past where it just was an utter failure? Or, or has this not really been implemented on a nationwide scale the way they've wanted it to? Oh, no, it's been tried, right? At the end of the day, it's literally running the printing presses to meet your government's fiscal needs, your government's fiscal expenditures. Pretty much every time there's a hyperinflation, it's because that has happened. And when we're talking hyperinflation, we're not just talking about like 10% inflation per, per year or anything like that. Right. We're talking about hundreds of percent of inflation per year, inflation that's going so fast that you know, if you get paid in the evening, the price of bread is doubled by the next morning when you go out to spend it, right? So we're talking about complete breakdown in the pricing process. Whether you're talking about contemporary Zimbabwe with their infamous $100 trillion notes, whether you're talking about Germany, 1920 to 1923, right when Germany ran its printing presses to, to try and pay off its- The Weimar Republic, problem. right. And we all know the consequences of that. They weren't great. This just is not the way that you want to go. It's not how a responsible, well-behaved government finances itself. And we have no reason to suspect that it's going to go much better for us than it has for the people who have tried it and failed to use it responsibly. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, I actually do have an example uh, it, that I tried. I remember being a kid and playing a game of Monopoly with friends, and we were all getting frustrated at the limit of money that we had. And so we eventually came up with this thing where we could, I didn't realize we were doing MMT. I was seven years old, but we would, we would say to the banker, like, you know, who I think was my mom. And we'd say, I'd like, you know, you to give me a trillion or, or I think we didn't know what trillions were then. I was like, I, I want, uh, uh, you know, a million notes. So she'd write on the thing, 1 million. And then I'd say, I'm going to give you this for that, you know, for boardwalk or whatever. And very quickly it devolved into, you know, I want, you know, a million million. I don't even know if we knew what a billion was back then. And, it, and the, the game completely fell apart inside of about 10, 15 minutes. And I think of that every time that I hear people unironically say stuff like, we just need platinum trillion dollar coins and then we won't have to print out money and I'm, or we won't, have to, uh, we won't have to tax people. And I'm thinking, like, you really think that everyone's got, this is worth a trillion dollars because I said it is. Oh, okay. In no way is this going to affect the economy. I, I don't, I don't get, let me, I, I guess uh, before we, we get, go to your final thoughts, I, I want to ask you how prevalent you're, you're in economics. Is this a prevalent or growing school of thought in the economic, in the economy world of economists uh, of economics, or is this a, just a, like a, 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 
a wish list type of political posturing that's that's in the political world is this becoming mainstream in economics so here's the silver lining there's a very clear answer to that question no it is actually not a thing for the most part within academic scholarly economics even okay. economists on the left or at least the center left think of mmt as just kind of crazy frankly that's not to say there's nobody, right? There's specific right. scholars in specific programs at specific schools who, who put stock in MMT. But as a general proposition, it's not something that's persuaded even a significant minority of, of practicing academic economists. There's no real academic work. There's not like contemporary scholarly articles defending it that are getting in reputable journal, uh, journals. What it's mostly done, though, is it's done an end run around academic economics and made it straight into the policy process. Right. Usually we count on academia and scholarship as sort of vetting economic ideas so that by the time they percolate to the policy sphere, we at least have some idea of what's good and what's bad. Now, that obviously doesn't work, right, because mainstream economics, which is which previously respectable uh, among politicians, in my view, isn't you know anything to write home about. I think it's much too interventionist and much too fond of top down control. But compared to what else is out there, right, compared to the pop economics of, you know, the, the social justice warrior in the street, it was positively sane. So we at least had that break on some of the worst ideas. But uh, somehow modern monetary theory has bypassed the, uh, the academy and injected itself straight into the policy process. So on the one hand, it's good that it hasn't really won any scholarly adherence. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be implemented in policy and affect hundreds of millions of people. Right. Because economics now is what looks best, you know, scrawled in red on a, on a dress as opposed to like actual sound policy. It, it's kind of depressing, but I, I hope that just one would think that the common sense, why, why, as I'm saying that, I wouldn't think that. I would like to say that one would think that the common sense would eventually win out, that you can't just print out endless reams. It's not even printing. You can't just create endless money and expect everyone to go, oh, this is literally worth what it has always been worth, even though you just created a million trillion more of them. Clearly, this is worth that. I'm going to continue going about my day. And everyone else does that as well. It's 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 mind numbing, especially in the in the uh, in the, the the entire history of what happens. The, the, you mentioned the Weimar Republic in in or Weimar Republic in uh, in Germany or modern Zimbabwe or even what's going on in Venezuela. Uh, you know. This is what happens when people decide money is whatever they say it is. And it's, it's incredible that we're not going in the other direction and talking about why government is even involved in money in the first place, why we aren't looking at DeFi and looking at competing forms of currency. But anyway, uh, Alex, Professor Salter, it has been fantastic to have you on. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to have your final thoughts, your last word, anything that you feel like you haven't had a chance to say, uh, anything you want to uh, leave uh, finally imparting with uh, our, our viewers here, uh, anything you want to promote that's coming up, anything you want to talk about at all, Any no limit to the time, no limit to what you can say. Uh, Professor Alexander Salter, the floor is yours. Great. I do have one thing I would like to mention. So we're obviously looking for some alternatives to uh, contemporary monetary institutions and arrangements because we think that the Federal Reserve, with its massive powers and massive discretion, hasn't really you know, clothed itself in glory. It's not done a great job. It's missed a lot of crises, right from the Great Depression to the Great Recession and everything in between. We might want to take a fundamental look at what it's doing and how it's governed. 
So I have a, a new book out. It came out at the end of May, co-authored with Pete Becky at George Mason University and Dan Smith at Middle Tennessee State. The title of that book is Money and the Rule of Law. And the subtitle is Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. If you just Google money and the rule of law, it'll be, it'll be one of the first things that you see. And what we argue in that book is conditional on having a central bank, we're still going to have a Federal Reserve. Then the way to fix it is to force it to follow a strict monetary rule. So in other words, the Federal Reserve should not get to determine what its goals are. The Federal Reserve should have a rule for what its goals are chosen for it. And then it's appropriate for the central bankers to sort of decide how they're best going to hit the goal. But in terms of the ultimate objective of monetary policy, like an inflation target or a purchasing power of the dollar target, or even an aggregate demand target, right? What economists call a nominal income target. Any one of those is a viable option. The important thing is we lasso this thing and we get it under control because the Federal Reserve has been de facto autonomous for too long. And that's a large part of the reason why we have these bad monetary outcomes. Now, I have absolutely no hesitation in admitting that if I were picking monetary institutions, you know, from scratch, I would not pick a central bank. I would basically have a free market and money and finance. You know, what works yep. for other goods yep. also works for money and finance. We have the theory to, to make the argument and we have the economic history to demonstrate that, it, that it's uh, that's actually how it works. But Knowing uh, politics is what it is, the best that we can probably hope for in the short run is meaningful reform to the Fed. And so long as that's our operating you know, envelope, as long as that's our framework, I think hoping for a genuine monetary rule is the way to go. So I and my co-authors in that book titled Money of the Rule of Law make the argument for a monetary rule. We argue why rules beat discretion. We argue how a rules-based approach could have helped us, uh, could have made the 2008 financial crisis much more mild than it actually was. And we survey some great thinkers in the classical liberal tradition, like Milton Friedman, James Buchanan, and F.A. Hayek, and talk about how they thought about monetary rules. Uh, because all of them thought about monetary economics in very different ways, but intriguingly, all of them came to the same conclusion, which is that we need to bound the Federal Reserve with a rule. We can't just let it be a rule unto itself. So I hope you'll check that out, and I hope that you will uh, find that a useful tool for you as you think about, look, what ways can we inform and improve monetary policy as it actually exists? Very good. So money and the rule of law. That's right. Cambridge University Press. Very good. I will uh, I will get the link to that, include that in the notes and everything so everyone knows to uh, I'll spam the comments. In fact, I'm spamming the comments right now while people are watching this. I'm spamming the comments in real time with that link so you can get it today. Uh, listen, Professor Salter, Alex, thank you again so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Spike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Forgot to turn my mic on. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that great? I mean, it, you probably already went into this knowing that, you know, just printing out endless money or printing out endless money is a bad thing. But to have someone lay it out like that, he, he's an incredible guy. We're definitely going to have him on more in the future to talk about, you know, examining micro parts of macroeconomics. Uh, we, we, he's definitely going to be someone that we go to. Guns up, Texas Tech. So when I was in Lubbock, Texas campaigning last year, for the Jorgensen Cohen campaign on the bus tour. I had never been to Lubbock, Texas. And I got there and very quickly everyone's like, guns up. And I'm like, sure. I, I, I did, first of all, I didn't know. I thought this was the L for libertarian. And then they're like, guns up. And I'm like, yeah, I like guns. And they're like, Texas Tech. And I'm like, 
sure. So finally someone had to explain what that was. And by the time we were out of there within 24 hours, it was like, guns up. Everyone was guns up. So that's what I think about when I think of Texas Tech. That and the fact that the guy gave me that cowboy hat or let me wear his cowboy hat. So if you've seen that picture of me wearing the cowboy hat, that's from Lubbock. And we're literally across the street from Texas Tech. Guns up, Texas Tech. Folks, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, it's been really great. I really enjoyed uh, the... Uh, I really enjoyed... Well, don't get the hardcover. Yeah, the, the book is 30 bucks paperback or 20 bu- 18 50 on Kindle. I wouldn't get... I mean, the hard, I mean, if you want the hardcover, you can get it. But it is like 90 bucks. yeah. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for hanging out. Um, when am I going to be in Oklahoma? Oh, no. Uh, hold on. I can tell you that. I'm going to be in Oklahoma. It's going to be next month. I can tell you that. Um, I'm going to be in Oklahoma the 22nd, 23rd, and... Oh, just 22nd and 23rd. I'm going to be in Oklahoma on the 22nd and the 23rd to help support the Natalie Bruno for Governor campaign and the Oklahoma Libertarian Party. That's what I'll be in. And it's going to be in... Edmond, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So that's where I'm going to be. So thanks again for tuning in to this amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. And it was amazing because you're here. It was amazing also because of our guests, but it was amazing because you were here. Um, Cool. Well, I hope to see you there. Um, Let's see. So, oh, don't forget, if you want to become an exclusive member of the Mudsketeer Club. I don't, we're not going to call it that. Uh, you can go to anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters slash subscribe. Uh, that allows you to get members-only exclusive content every other week. And every month, you become you get to join the exclusive Muddied Zoom. Get to hang out on Zoom with me and Matt Wright and uh, Nullick and Noel and Jason and all the other Muddy Waters all-stars for only 10 bucks a month. And... We live stream that so all your friends and loved ones can watch you hang out with us and they'll think, oh wow, if only I was also a Mudsketeer, we have to come up with a new name. We're not, there's no way we're going to use Mudsketeer. If only I was a Mud Deed Waters member, uh, I too could be up there hanging out with them on Zoom. So $10 a month uh, and uh, yeah, anchor.fm slash muddywaters slash subscribe to become a subscriber today. Uh, tomorrow, muddied buddy. I don't. Mud puppies. These are. We might stick with Mudsketeer. We might stick with Mudsketeer. So tune in tomorrow. Uh, hold on. I'm looking at October. Tune in tomorrow for the writer's block. Matt Wright's guest will be Nate Honey Badger Atkins, who is running for mayor of Minneapolis. Now you're thinking, wow, mayor of Minneapolis. I wonder if he's got anything going on. Well, he does. On Friday the 1st, I will be flying to Minneapolis to campaign with Nate Honey Badger Atkins. Uh, we will be starting with a, uh, a dinner, a, a fundraiser dinner to help raise money for his campaign. And then Saturday, we're doing all sorts of stuff. We're doing a breakfast. We're doing activism from 1 to 5. 
We're doing a mixer with the volunteers. We're doing dinner and bowling. We're doing all sorts of fun stuff on Friday and Saturday. And uh, then there's a brunch on Sunday. Uh, if you go to Nate Atkins' social media or website, you can find out more. If you go to SpikeCohen.com, you can find out more as well. I will be posting updates throughout the, the weekend uh, with where you can come and see us. All through Minneapolis, come hang out with us. Uh, and oh, and also on Friday at 9.30, uh, if you can't be with us in Minneapolis, what you can do is you can watch uh, Noel and Nullick right here uh, on Cajun and Eskimo from Bayou to Igloo uh, right here. And then next Monday, join us right back here at 8 p.m. on Muddy Waters Media for Jason Lyon, Mr. America, the Bearded Truth. Uh, then on Tuesday, join us uh, at 8 p.m. for the Muddy Waters of Freedom where Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the, like the sweet little weeks events parsers we are uh and then join me right back here same spike place same spike time for another fan diddly tastic episode of the of my fellow americans thank you again for tuning in folks i love all of you i'm so happy to uh to to be hanging out with i'm so happy to have you here you guys are great all of these names are where we might muddy member i think we're just gonna be mudsketeers i think yeah. muddied militia the mudlicia we a member anchor.fm slash subscribe slash no anchor.fm slash muddy water slash subscribe muddy militia that's actually not terrible we're gonna work on that folks thanks so much for tuning in i will see you uh next week i'm spike cohen and you are the power. God bless, guys. Who would want to raise a child? Who would want to raise a child?
we will make 